All right, making our way through 1 Peter, we're going to start reading in verse 10, and I'll read down to verse 17. So 1 Peter 3, 10 through 17. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must, he, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. Let's pray. Father, we have every confidence this morning that this is your holy word. And as Peter tells us in a, in a subsequent chapter, Lord, that these are your oracles. And that as we speak, as, as, as preachers speak, teachers speak, as I speak this morning, that I would do so remembering that these are the very oracles of God. And that, Lord, we would all submit to this precious, uh, majestic, powerful, searching word. And, Lord, you'd give us power to do what it says. And, Lord, for those who don't know you, we pray, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself this morning um, as the truth is being spoken. And, Lord, we thank you for hearing us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so working our way through... Last week we looked a little bit at verse 11, where Peter tells us, quoting Psalm 34, that the one who wants to be blessed by the Lord must turn away from evil. So we looked at that last week, that if we want to have blessing from the Lord, we must turn away from evil. So of course this means that we have to know what evil is, or else we won't turn away from it. And how do you do that? But by understanding the scriptures, understanding God's commands, understanding God's design, for all things and what he has said and as long as we are recognizing what is good we will recognize what is evil and be able to turn away from those things and I listed some examples of that last week so that's sort of a negative command that Peter gives here a negative instruction that is that you turn away from evil and now we'll move on to a positive command and to do good and we'll also look at how he connects verse 13 through 17 to this phrase to do good Because in Peter's mind, he wants these people to be folks that actually are actively doing good in their lives. So so this is a positive statement that we are to be those who do good. So again, we're laying out conditions for God's blessing. We want the Lord's blessing. You want the blessing of God in your own life. We want the blessing of God here in our church. And fundamentally, it's not just about not doing evil, right? But it's also positively doing good. Good. You've got to have both, don't you? Um, there are whole denominations that, that set themselves up as those who don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, 
right? But we don't want to just not do evil. We also want to do good. So, this is what Peter is highlighting for us. Now, before I get into this whole idea of doing good, um, I want us to I want to at least say, just for some of you who may not be as clear, or maybe some of you kids, you need to you need to know this and remember this. It's very important as we talk about good works that you understand the role of good works in the Christian life. Okay? It's make it's important to make sure that everyone here knows that good works do not save anyone, right? They do not make you right with God. Right? You can't do enough good works to be right with God. The Bible is clear that no man will be justified by the works of the law. Romans chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, By grace we are saved, not as a result of works, that no one boast. Right? And there's many, many more we could, we could cite. So no amount of good works will make you righteous before God. And that's an important question, right? How is a man going to be right with God? That's fundamental to our really to, to our existence, to our, to our meaning, purpose, to our eternity. How can a man be right with God? Well, it's not by works. It's by grace. It's by God's favor on the undeserving, which is tethered to the cross. The Bible also says that no one does good if they're not Christians. Romans chapter 3 again. No one does good, which he's quoting Psalm 14. God looks down from heaven to see if there are any who do good. And the, and the ultimate conclusion is, no. None of them do good. Nobody. That's breathtaking, isn't it? The Lord's perspective on the human race, no matter how humanitarian they may be, how, how, no matter how philanthropic they may be, right? no matter how nice they may seem, if they're not in Christ... They can't do any good, nor are they good, essentially. Last week, I think, wasn't it last week when we brought up Genesis 6, where God looked at the, the state of affairs, the human race, and he, he, he saw that the, the thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually. This is the state of the human race. Even though they're there in a society making civilization happening, as Jesus says, marrying and giving in marriage and all these things, Business as usual, giving good gifts to their children, yet at the same time, they are evil. They are evil from God's perspective. And, and I pointed out last week, if you've never seen yourself as evil, then you don't know the reason for which Jesus came. Jesus came to save us from evil, evil within ourselves, right? Ultimately, this present evil age. But no one is good. So good works won't save you, primarily because you can't do any good works. Um, they're not good. Why? Well, ultimately, God, it matters that you do them in connection with his son. And, of course, motive matters. Again, I always think about the sermon George Whitfield preached. I think it was called The Almost Christian. The Almost Christian, where he said it's amazing how much a man can do out of self-love. How much good a man can do out of self-love. It's a staggering statement, scary statement. <laughs> but, but it's the truth, isn't it? You look across the, 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 the landscape of human beings, and even when you see the most philanthropic, selfless people, most of the time, what you're finding underneath, if you dig a little, is a self-righteous individual. Someone who does it for recognition, or even just to make themselves feel good. But they don't do it for God's glory and for the gospel. And God looks at these things and he says the human race is evil. It's, it's staggering. 
So, so even the best act of alleviating poverty or good gifts for your children, God says, look, everyone is evil. But if we're in Christ, we can do good works and God will reward us for this. And so it's important to know that, that, that good works don't save you, but all genuine Christians will do good works. Right? On the day of judgment, the proof that you are a sheep and not a goat is the works you have done. Now those works do not make you a sheep or a goat. Those works prove that you are a sheep or a goat. So that's the idea. So it's very important. But, but it's important to know that good works are not optional. I would say they are absolutely necessary in the end for final salvation. Not as a basis, but as a natural and inevitable outflowing of regeneration. So this is, this is good works are not optional. They flow from a heart that's been born again. They're not the way you get born again, but they always flow from the new birth. Well, then how can a man be saved? How can a woman be saved? How can a little kid be saved? Well, Jesus, right after he brings up how to be born, or bring up, bring up, brings up the fact that you have to be born again in order to enter the kingdom, he brings up that passage in the Old Testament in Numbers where just like they looked at the serpent in the wilderness and were healed when they looked at it, so also the Son of Man must be lifted up and whoever believes in Him would have eternal life. And that's it, isn't it? The, the way you are saved, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy, but it's true, is by looking to Jesus Christ in faith. That's what it is. It's actually looking, taking the eyes of your faith, looking to Christ and seeing Him there as a sufficient Savior. That's what it is. You see Christ as your only hope and Savior. You repent of your sin. God counts you as righteous in His sight. He takes your wicked, evil acts that have accumulated this debt against Him and He wipes them away when you look to Jesus Christ as a sufficient Savior. That's wonderful. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And so as someone who who knows that and who has embraced Christ... They now have the Spirit of God, and now they live lives where they want to do good works. So, and, but we have to remember this. We always have to remember this, that good works are not an option. They're not an option. And for Christians that know from where they've come in terms of being saved from evil and sin and darkness and the wrath of God, and we know that we have the message of eternal life, we are going to want to do good things Why? Not because we're nice people, per se, but because we want others to understand the power and change this gospel brings, and also so that they will come to this Christ who has saved us. This is fundamental. We want to give them what's most loving, to give them, because we have love now in our hearts. And that's the saving power and message of of the cross. So, all right, so Peter says, the one who desires life, the one who wants the blessing of God, must do good. So, this is what he says. It sounds simple. Christians are to be known. New Covenant is supposed to be known for good works. You come in here, you should be able to hear people talk about the interactions they've been having with others. At least it's not that they're there like, you know, parading it around like, look at me. But you just get a sense that, wow, people are busy with others. Not just with themselves. They're doing good. That's what they're doing. They're not just wrapped up in their own life. 
sitting on the bench. And again, that can be a thank you letter, okay? Or that can be door-to-door evangelism. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But fundamentally here, Christians are about others. We're about others. We want others to flourish in Christ. This is who we're to be. Now, it might seem simple just to say Christians do good in Peter's day. I mean, there's nothing really glamorous about the statement, right? It's not very complicated per se. But you'll feel how, um, how important it is or how, um, I don't know, how, how impactful it is when you consider Peter's context for writing. Uh, when you consider the, the, the world that he's writing into, okay, um, Peter here, when he says do good, and he says some other things here in verse 13 and 17, he is exhorting the people away from two things. When he says do good, he's telling you to, to go away from two things. He's, he's keeping you from fear. He's wanting to push you away from fear to be active in doing good. And he's also wanting to push you away from evil that you would be tempted to do to, that you would be tempted to do in a context where there is much opposition. Okay, so he wants to remind you to do good, be in, be selfless, be be helping, be out looking, outward focused, because Christians are not to be paralyzed by fear, which, which we'll talk about in a minute why they would be. And, in a context of opposition, you might be tempted to do evil. You might be tempted to take up a, a cause that isn't for the truth or for the gospel. It might be out of anger, it might be out of being fretful or, or, or uh, yeah, just could be out of vindictive, could be out of a, a vengeful spirit, all these kinds of things, revolt. So Peter is pushing these people toward good, away from evil and away from yeah, away from being paralyzed by fear and away from evil. Okay, I hope I said that right. So listen, listen, listen to some of this, uh, these statements here in the same context. So verse 13, again, pushing them to do good. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Right? Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? So there you see that you're to be zealous to do good. Not just doing good, but zealous to do good. You want to look for ways to do good. You're eager to find a new way to do good. That's the assumption about Christians. Is that you? Is that what you're about? You're thinking, man, what can I do to encourage a brother and sister? What can I do to bring the gospel to this this individual, my neighbor? What can I do to be zealous for what's good? Okay, That's, that's a good mindset to have. One that's easy to lose, it can be, but you've got to keep it. So, so what do we make of this statement? Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Well, it's clear from this verse that in Peter's day, people are afraid of harm. Right? They're afraid. He's coming to them as, as, a, as a leader, saying, look, who, who's going to harm you if you're, if you're doing good? Think about that. I mean, that makes sense. And it's important to know here that the fear that they have is not speculative. The the people are concerned that harm will come to them for being a Christian, sort of in public, so to speak, 
because of the view that the world around them had about Christianity, starting from the top down. It's a fact, isn't it, that when there is fear, there's paralysis. It just, it's just the truth. And, and, and the book of Proverbs tells us this, the fear of man brings a, what? A snare. What's a snare? You get your leg trapped in a snare, right? And you don't move. You can't go anywhere. It just traps you. I don't want to say that. I don't want to do that. I'm afraid. What he will think. What she will think. What will they do? Or what will they think of me? Right? And so you get afraid of man and then you don't do anything. Or you get afraid of, let's remember COVID. Remember when COVID came? Everybody was freaking out. Nobody did anything. Stay home. Don't do a thing. You know? I'm so thankful for, for, for our church because we were like, well, let's go help. I, I love that. I, I just ugh, perish the thought that, that we would ever let any crisis make us afraid of anything, but that we would engage it and be helpful. Not that we want to throw caution to the wind, but. But I'm just saying that, that we would not crumple in fear. God is sovereign, and he's our God. right? So we don't, we don't get afraid, or we shouldn't be afraid. But the reality is that it's easy to get afraid when there's crisis, right? when, when there's, you're afraid of what someone will think. It brings a snare. It, it's, it's fearful. It makes you paralyzed. Peter says, I don't want you paralyzed. I know what the world around you thinks about Christians, but I want you to do good anyway. So Peter, and let let me be clear here, Peter's context is different than sort of a natural disaster like COVID. Peter's context is one of persecution. It's the real threat of persecution. Not a fake threat, but a real threat. At this point, when Peter is writing, at least in his region in Turkey and in Asia, it's probably not as intense, but the reality is of what is going on probably at the moment Peter is writing, it very well could be in the moments that he is writing, there's a fire going on in Rome that the ruler arguably started himself and then ended up blaming it on Christians. You know his name. His name is Nero. And that was really, that really happened. And he did it, he, he started the fire, some say, because he wanted to rebuild Rome. But a significant portion of the city burned and destroyed a large, large, large section of the city. And he needed a scapegoat, right? And so he ends up blaming it on the Christians. And the Romans didn't know what to make of Christians because, by and large, they were pacifists, and I'll, I'll say this a little bit more later, whereas the Jews were not. The Jews, if you, if you poke them the wrong way and you, pro, you poke them long enough, they might revolt. So they had to be careful. If you poke them too much, we might get a black eye. Christians were different, and Christians were not respected because Christians, by and large, were pacifists, following in the train of their master. But Christians were not viewed at all well in the Roman world. So Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, a contemporary, says this, Consequently, to get rid of the report of the fire that broke out in Rome, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite torture on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. 
a class hated for their abominations, right? because they said that Christians were atheists, they said that they were, uh, what's the word, incestual, all manner of different horrible, untrue slanders. But this is, this is their perspective of Christians. He goes on to say that Christus, from whom the name had its origins, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of the procurators, Pontius Pilate. And, a most, and it is a most mischievous, mischievous superstition. So it's called a superstitio, along with some of the other. There were other cults, too, that were called that. But Christians were not looked at as respectable. You know, they, they, we, we do not understand what this is like. Maybe we are, maybe more and more as time goes on, but we do not fundamentally grasp this. I mean, just think, the capital city of the empire in which you were a citizen is torturing individuals, men and women, simply because they follow Jesus Christ. And I'm not just talking about putting you together by lethal, or putting you to death by lethal injection. We're talking making you a spectacle before all, burning you on a stake, and, and things I can't even really talk about from up here. Horrific things. Barbaric treatment of Christians. Now it was localized to Rome for a few years after the fire. Where Peter is writing is about 1,500 miles away in Turkey and in Asia. And yet, you know, news travels fast when these kinds of things are happening, and you're getting wind of that, I'm sure, as a Christian. Christianity posed a threat because, various reasons, but fundamentally it's pretty much economic. I know Matt's probably talked about this a bunch in church history. But there was a real threat to the economy because everything was tied to their pagan system. The worship of many gods. So, you know, you're not going to be buying many chickens anymore. You're not going to be buying much incense anymore. You're not going to be buying all the accoutrements, the idols, and everything else. If, start Christian, if people, everyone starts to become Christians, then your sort of pagan society falls apart. So there was a real threat there. So that's why they end up becoming a scapegoat for anything. If crops aren't growing, they blame it on the Christians. Ladies infertile blames it on the Christians. There's all this suspicion, big question mark, over everybody who's a Christian. It's new, and it's, and it's creating real um, change in people, and it's a threat. It's a threat to temple worship, so on and so forth. But fundamentally, Christianity is illegal in Rome right now. So imagine, you, you, know, you, you wake up in a world where Christianity is illegal. Imagine that. You wake up tomorrow, you hear something come across the news that says, we're passing a law that if you're a Christian and found to be so, we reserve the right to bring you before a trial, convict you, and potentially put you to death. Imagine if you woke up in a world like that. Now, under Nero, he didn't establish a law. He had a sort of erratic fits of rage. But right after him, with Trajan, 
he did establish a law that said that very thing. That if you're a Christian, two people bring you before the court saying you're a Christian and then they put you to trial and say, pinch a little incense to, to, the, to, uh, to Caesar and to one of the gods. If you, if you don't pinch some incense to Caesar, to the one of the gods, then, then yep, sure enough, you're, you're a Christian and you could be put to death. But, but this is the kind of environment. This is the kind of environment that, that the people were in in the first three centuries of the church. That's, that's why Peter's writing to them about how they need to be thinking about their situation. How do you think about your situation when you're living in a world that's hostile to Christianity, and overtly so? What would it be if you, how would you think about your life if you knew that if, you're go, if you go public with Jesus, you could lose your job, you could be ostracized from your community, you could be the talk of the community, right? You could just get a sense that people are whispering about you. You could be torn away from your family, you could lose your head. Again, it puts a little bit more color to it, doesn't it? When Peter says, hey, continue to do good. <laughs> you're like, I want to leave Rome. I want to get out of here. But Peter doesn't say that, does he? Peter doesn't say head to the hills. He doesn't say that, does he? He says do good. Think of the verse again. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? One thing that we, one thing that we learn from history in those first centuries is um, many governors, even though Christianity was illegal and they had this law in place, many of the governors did not pursue this very far. I mean, honestly, it takes you time, it takes you energy, you got to weigh, is it worth it? The unrest that could come. These are real people's lives, after all. So oftentimes, they would dial back. It's not like Christians were hunted, per se, yet. Not really until Diocletian, I would think although there were pockets, I'm sure. But Peter's statement sort of staggering, isn't it? Even all these things being true, when he says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? I mean, the, the answer could be, well, I mean, lots of people. But Peter has a sense here that, by and large, I mean, Romans, Rome's a big empire. So again, don't think that this is, every village you go to, people are being slaughtered. That's not what it is at this point. Again, there are pockets, there's rumblings, there's the suspicion. But Peter is saying here that, by and large, no one's going to harm you if you prove zealous for doing good. It's important to remember this, isn't it? It is important to remember this. He exhorts them away from fear, knowing that good oftentimes will be recognized as not a threat. So if you're helping your neighbors, if you're paying your taxes... If you're housing the homeless, feeding the poor, overall being a good citizen, you'll have favor in their eyes. And this is true. This is true. He's, he's addressing their fear by just telling them, like, look, it, it oftentimes, if you're doing good, it, it, you'll, you'll probably be left alone. I feel like some in our day would want to correct Peter. Right. 
Peter, how can you? That's naive. How can you say that? How can you say people are going to leave you alone if you do good? I mean, don't, didn't, you see, didn't you hear what so-and-so did in Rome? But I think Peter wants them to know that, again, by and large, it's true. And, and even when you're in prison, I've heard from accounts from, from some folks that have been in prison who've been in there a long time, that good behavior is, is something that will actually keep you in good standing with the officers present. You fall in line with the rules, you steer away from conflict, you're good, and hey, you may even get out a little bit earlier. You can, get good, you can be let out by good behavior. You can have your sentence reduced. So this is Peter's logic, and I think we need to understand that. I think we, we, need, to, we need to be careful on how much, how much evil we put on every single person. While it's true that all people are evil, they're not as evil as they could be, and common grace restrains a lot of evil, thankfully. So Peter says, who's there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? By and large, that's a true statement. That's encouraging, isn't it? That's a true statement. But this leads to the next reason I think that Peter wants to exhort them to do good. He wants to exhort them to do good to not, or so, so that they'll remember to not to do evil. So sometimes when you're fearful due to oppressive difficult situations, it can lead to hasty, vindictive, rebellious, frantic behavior. Right? So think of Psalm 37, where evil men are prospering all over the land. The psalmist says, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, for it leads only to what? Some of you know it. Evil doing. It only leads to evil doing. When you get really frantic and fretful, is it helpful? <laughs> Do you feel like, you feel like that you're, uh, you're really uh, moving through the, uh, the, the conflict or through the tribulation by worrying, worrying lots and working yourself up? Or working others up because you're frantic and worried and anxious? No, it, you work yourself up, you work others up, it works up strife it could work up dissension it could work up even more worry and you begin to just extrapolate in your own mind the way things are going to go and you don't even know if they're going to go that way it leads only to evil doing he says he says it leads only to evil doing cease from anger forsake wrath we think that anger is going to achieve something if we're doing something out of anger we feel like we're going to really get something done and and the Psalmist says, "No, no, 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 no. You, 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 you have a you have a misapprehension of your own ability here, and a, and a, and a misapplication of 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 God's sovereignty, of a misapplication of of anger, and so on and so forth." But Pete, Peter mentions some similar thoughts here in chapter two, verse thirteen. So you can turn back to chapter two, verse thirteen. Again, wanting them to do good so that they will not slide into doing evil. So 2.13, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority, or to governors as sent by him from the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you might silence the ignorance of foolish men. 
So even, in, even with it re, as it pertains to governments, he's saying submit, and, even if, and, he, and he has this idea here that there's going to be foolish men saying certain things about you that could be in these, these, in these contexts of government, these institutions of government that will be silenced when you do right. He's like, you, you want them to keep their mouths shut? Do right. That's what he says. He says, act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for what? For evil. Don't think that your freedom means that you can disregard the governments that be and just sort of do whatever you want. Hey, we're king's kids. We can do what king's kids do, which is, you know, which, which has very little bearing on these people here or these institutions here. He says, don't go that way. That's a wrong application of your salvation in Christ. Use it as bond slaves of God, he says. Bond slaves of God. So you, you, you come up underneath the powers that be as a testimony and a witness to them in that context. Verse 17, honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. <laughs> honor the king. Honor the king doesn't mean you make up stuff about how great he is or come up with stuff that is not true about him, but it does mean that he's there by divine decree. And you're to honor that and honor him. Being rebellious, insubordinate to human government, the institutions that be, at every level really, whether you're talking about law enforcement, you're talking about your, your boss at work, or all of these all of these. All of these um, institutions that humanity have where there's authority structures, by and large, he's saying, come up underneath authority. Don't use your freedom as a covering for evil. And again, one of the primary marks that set the Christians apart in the first century was their pacifism. The Jews were known for pushing back if buttons were pushed too much. Christians were odd because they did not fight back. This was the pattern laid down to them by Christ and, and the apostles. So exhor- exhorting these brethren to do good in a context where your neighbors may rat you out or at some level you, you, you're, some, you're a pariah in a society, it'd probably make you want to do evil at some point, right? You'd, you'd probably want to get back at somebody somehow. But Peter says don't. You may want to go around and speak evil of the Roman rulers or the officials in your town. And you may want to get back at them. Maybe you don't want to pay your taxes. Maybe you do want to start a revolt. Peter says, don't do evil. Don't use your freedom as a covering for evil. Do good. And most of the time, if you do good, they'll leave you alone. That's, that's the logic. That's the logic. But we know it's not a guarantee. Peter knows it's not a guarantee. And so that's why he says the rest in verse 14 and following. He says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Even there, he's, he's going against your manner. 
Don't be rebellious. Don't be vindictive. Don't be spiteful. Gentle reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. It's better if God should will it so you suffer for doing, it, doing what's right than doing, for doing what is wrong. So if you suffer for doing good, Peter wants them to have the right perspective. Well, what perspective should they have? Well, he says you're blessed if you suffer for righteousness. Do you believe that? <laughs> Mistreated by friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, whatever it may be unjustly accused for this and that? Do you believe that you're a blessed person? Peter does. God does. So you should too. Because at the end of the day, isn't it more important to you that you are sort of in the fight like your Savior? I don't mean that you're there, because obviously Jesus wasn't a brawler, but when I say fight, I mean... You're a part of his house. You're getting treated like he got treated. Isn't that wonderful in and of itself? It just means you're sort of, you're caught up in the way that he goes about promoting the gospel. You're caught up in the way that he promotes the kingdom. And, and that means sometimes you'll get mistreated. You'll get ostracized. You'll get alienated. And you'll get horrible things said about you from time to time. But as, as long as you keep your own conscience clean, you are blessed. You're in the, you're, you're in, you're in the ranks with your king. That's what Peter's saying. You are blessed. We have to have a definition from the Bible on what true blessing is. And, it, and it's not freedom from conflict or slander or, or any evil that people do against you. If your conscience is clean and you're living before the Lord, you are blessed when you're persecuted. When you suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. What else? Well, he says Christ is Lord over their persecution. This is another thing you're to remember. You get drugged before them, you're to set Jesus Christ as Lord apart in your hearts. In other words, you, the, the sovereignty of God is not just a doctrine to persecuted Christians, is it? It is your absolute survival. <laughs> the Lordship of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. You know, to, to my post-millennial friends, it's important that they get a grasp on how the, 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 the reign of Jesus Christ works out in a culture. The reign of Jesus Christ works out in a culture not by minimizing or decreasing the amount that you're brought before wicked rulers. It's by being brought before wicked rulers and making a defense before them as a testimony to the gospel and to God's goodness. This is what Jesus sitting at the right hand will do. And it may not end in the salvation of the ruler that brings you before them. It might mean your head gets lopped off, but it's still, as Jesus says in the, the Gospel of Luke and Matthew, that you will, be, you will go before nations as a testimony to them. Not just that they'll be saved, but that as a testimony to them. God has purposes in your witness to Him, whether by salvation or judgment. As one man said, that you will glorify God like Judas or like John. And you will. But Christ is Lord over their persecution. This is God's sovereign plan. Christ himself will, will allow you to be ratted out by neighbors 
and brought before wicked rulers so that you will there be able to, 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 to give a, a reason for the hope that you have. Why are you not fighting me today? How are you letting me bring you in here without any retaliation? How, how, are, you not, how are you not just trying to bolt and run away? Why, why, why haven't you struck any of my officers? You say, because I have a hope. I want you to know that hope. The hope that is in you. I got a hope in me. I got a hope in me. It's a, it's, it's a hope that attaches me to the future, future glory. Do you have this hope? This, this, is, this is who we are. This is why we are here. Christ is Lord. He says, set Christ as Lord in this persecution and be ready to proclaim Christ. Make a defense. Make an apology. Make a, an ordered case to everyone who asks you to give an account. This is not about an apologetics ministry. This is about making a defense to those who mistreat you. Or anybody who asks you about the hope in you. It's not just that. It's anybody who asks you. But, but it's in the context of suffering for righteousness. That's what he says in verse 14. But he also says be gentle and respectful. It's very important that we do this. Like Christ, who did not open his mouth. Right? He did not open his mouth. He, he let them lead him away. That's a profound reality. It says in, in the Gospels that they led him away. Jesus, is, I mean, he's the leader of the universe, but he's letting these men lead him away. He, he's no victim, ultimately, is he? And you've got to keep a good conscience so that they will be put to shame even though they slander you. And this is, again, this is, a, this is the fine point I want to make under this category of you do good and it keeps you away from evil. You keep a good conscience so that they will be put to shame even though they slander you, Peter says. Verse 16, keep a good conscience. Have your conscience informed by the scriptures so that you know if you've done anything wrong. And then when you know what's right to do, don't do the opposite. Don't do wrong. It's basically what it means. When those who slander these people do so, these Christians might be tempted to get back, to lash back. But he says, keep a clean conscience. You don't want to go there. It's easy to go there. Don't go there. Don't go start to spread gossip with your neighbors about these people that you think are going to rat you out. Don't go there. Just keep a clean conscience. I was telling somebody the other day who's in a very hard situation in a relationship, and I told him, Look, it's going to be really hard. You're going to be tempted to do sin that you haven't been tempted to do before because the trial's going to get even harder. Keep a clean conscience. Whatever you do, keep a clean conscience. Because you keep a clean conscience and you know that you know, the Lord's pleased with you. If, if you know you didn't do anything wrong, if you keep a clean conscience, man, the, the peace that that affords you, you know? It's wonderful. And it's not always easy because the devil doesn't want you to have a clean conscience. He wants to turn you inside and turn you outside. I mean, just make you think horrible things about yourself and others and all kinds of things. But keep a clean conscience. 
Because when they slander you or they say these kinds of things, they're not going to have any sticking power if you are keeping a good conscience. So that's what I mean. As Paul tells us too, don't return evil for evil, but rather seek out that which is good for one another and for all. That's what you do. You, you bless. And these people will be put to shame who were slandering you one day. There are many reports in the first century of Christians experiencing heinous torture and death because they didn't retaliate. Um, that because they didn't retaliate, they were actually pitied by many of the Romans. Now, it didn't necessarily mean that they, the Romans who were torturing them and became Christians necessarily. Maybe some of them did, but, but it did mean that they would relent. They would let up. Many that were ordered to do so in secret wouldn't because they saw how awful it was, and they saw these Christians not fighting back, and it actually did something to them. And it started, they started to realize, hey, I, don't, I don't know these people really are that bad. I mean, they, what did they really do? Even Pontius Pilate, didn't he say, like, what, what's he done again? And he, he, he didn't hear anything, and he's like, okay, I'm innocent, because I didn't, you know. So if Jesus would have sat there and just railed and railed and railed, well, then they could say, okay, yeah, he's, he's definitely got this rebellious, revolutionary spirit. But Jesus didn't. And so Pilate couldn't find anything wrong with him. And, and we have to be that way too. If people do us wrong, we cannot return the favor. We have to keep a clean conscience. And verse 14, we're sort of floating around in these verses here of 13 through 17. Verse 14, Peter quotes from Isaiah 8. Where, he, where Isaiah exhorts those in his midst that are hearing rumblings of war against them and their nation. And I can't remember the context. I didn't have time to look back at it. I preached that passage probably twice. I'm just brain dead these days. But, but I do know that what it was, was there was, there was talk of these, these nations coming in allegiance to come against the nation of Israel. And in this context... Isaiah exhorts the people there to say this, or in this way. You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. So many folks believe here in verse 14 that Peter is quoting from Isaiah 12 where you can see in big print there in your Bibles and do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled. And that's what, that's what Isaiah is telling these people. When conspiracies abound and, and talk, and I mean, news channels, this is why they're in business pretty much. So be careful how much attention you pay to the news, right? I'm not saying don't watch it at all. I'm just saying just be careful. When they abound, fear is what they're trying to elicit. They are trying to just make you afraid and string you along. And, and what's next in, you know, in, in the next uh, step of this horrible plot and this and that? And you get caught up in it. 
And Isaiah warns against going around and publishing that fear and those conspiracies and stoking that fear. He says, don't say conspiracy is what he says. You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. You are not to say it. There's something there he's prohibiting. You're not supposed to go do that. And again, he's not denying that there are conspiracies. They very well have nations against them. He's simply saying don't get caught up in the frenzy. Why? Because it leads to fear. But what should we do instead? Well, instead we lift our eyes to the Lord of hosts. He says it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. Then he will become your sanctuary. What's Peter saying? Well, he's saying, or, or Isaiah's saying the same thing as Peter. Peter says, set Jesus Christ as Lord in your hearts. When times are tough, when persecutions come, when there's opposition, see the risen Jesus Christ as king of the universe in your own heart and know that that king is watching you. And pleasing him in this trial is what is most important or should be what's most important to you. And Isaiah says the same thing. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should fear and regard as holy. Know that God is sovereign. Christ is sovereign. Cultivate a sense of his majesty and sovereignty with fear. Isaiah is telling these people, remember you're in God's hands. God is big. He's majestic. He is sovereign ruler. You are His. Do not be afraid by what is said on the media. Don't be afraid. Fear Him. Fear. Make sure you're, you're more, you care way more about pleasing Him. When you have a big view of God and you live with the fear of God, the Lord tells us here, He will become a sanctuary for you. Don't you want a sanctuary? We we will all face trials. We will face opposition. And in that place, God doesn't want us to just sort of get beat up without help or or not experience any peace in the midst of it or anything like that. That's, That's not what He wants. He wants to be a sanctuary for you. But if you don't fear Him... What that means is your circumstance is this big and God is little. God is not little. (laughs) We have have billions of galaxies to remind us that God is not little. And He's not lying when He says He'll be your sanctuary. But do you believe that He will be? Do you believe that He really will be for you, just little old you? He'll become a sanctuary. This is amazing. This is wonderful. This is, this, is, this is similar to Peter saying, look, you, you want the blessing of God in your life? You want us to love and see good days? You want to have God as a sanctuary? We could very easily just add that to the list. Then regard Him as holy. Re- fear Him. Do you know what it is to find rest and peace in God? So much so that when, when, you, when, you've, when you're in a trial or the trial is over, you can testify to other people, God was a sanctuary for me. I'm so jealous that you guys learn that more and more and more. 
Because if not, fear will, will, will describe and define you. Because it will get worse here. It will be. We have been living on a holiday from history. And it will be. But that's okay. That's okay. Because we have God as a sanctuary. Is that true? I hope it's true for you. I I really do. I hope that you know what that is. Because if we don't know what that is, we will recant when we are asked to pinch a little incense to Caesar. We've got to know what it is to know God's upholding. We've got to know what it is to trust Him. We've got to know what that is. The Lord wants us to lift up our souls to Him. He wants you to know He's a sanctuary. Lift up your soul. When, you, when you're talking to people who are struggling, lift, show, them, show them the Lord of hosts. Show them that. And some situations are horribly difficult and you're going to have to do this every day but there is no other secret sauce there isn't any this is it and this is all you'll need but you've got to go to him (laughs) you've got to hide your soul in the lord peter says the eyes of the lord are toward the righteous isn't that what he says the eyes of the lord are toward the righteous his ears are open to their prayer in a context of opposition and persecution Christianity is illegal. You have the eye, you have the ear of the Lord of hosts. Oh, I hope you believe that. I hope you believe that. People who have their identity rooted in the Lordship of Christ are just more stable because they know nothing happens to them apart from His will. So I just want to encourage you to, to fight to keep Christ as Lord in your hearts. Keep a good conscience. And do good. Do good. You got a neighbor that doesn't like you? Make sure you're smiling at him. You know? Make sure that you don't return evil for evil. You got a spouse that doesn't like you? There's lots of different ways you can do them good. It'd probably be the last thing you'll want to do. But set Christ as Lord apart in your hearts. I'm in this circumstance by divine decree right now, and there's a way to do it well, and there's a way not to. And hey, when you blow it, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's the glory of the gospel, right? But keep a clean conscience and do good. Now I've got a lot here about what doing good is. Because all we've talked about so far is just in a context where there's fear and opposition, we can't let those things control us and we've just got to do good. But there's lots we can say about it, but we'll hold off and pull that in next week. So for now, just, I just want us to just remember Peter's whole context here, his, his emphasis here is that do not be afraid of their intimidation. Do not be troubled as we're, as we're doing good, we will face probably less opposition, but even if we face opposition, we can set Christ apart as Lord in our hearts, we keep a good conscience, remembering that this is God's will. The sovereignty of God is, is survival. For some of you who've gone through horrible things, the sovereignty of God really 
has upheld you. Certainly times are perplexing, times are strange, but God has upheld you. And, and hey, when I go through a, a, a horrible trial, I want you to be preaching this to me. Christ is Lord, Chris. You're suffering by the will of God in this. Keep a, keep a good conscience. Don't stop doing good. Paul says don't grow weary in doing good. It is wearisome, isn't it? Our flesh, we're still hitched to it. And our flesh doesn't want us to do good. You know? There is a war. And you can go, grow weary, but we're not, not supposed to. Don't grow weary, Paul says. Don't grow weary in doing good. For in due time we will reap. And one time you're going to look back and you're going to say, shoot, I shouldn't have given up on that. You know? I'm going to reap one day. We're all going to reap one day. We're all going to be a part of that great harvest. Anyway, lots more could be said. Let's pray. Father, you are the Lord of hosts. You're the Lord of armies. Lord Jesus, you are the captain of our salvation. You're the exalted, reigning Lord. And I just pray, Father, that we would all have you set apart in our hearts as that reigning Lord. Lord, that we would find our refuge in you, that we would, that we would see you as a refuge, as a sanctuary. Lord, you want to be, be like a, I don't know, Lord, like a, you say in your word, like an eagle that, that hides us under your pinions, under your wings, that we live there in the shadow of the Almighty. You want to keep us there. And Lord, that we would cultivate more and more what that is, that we would cultivate what it is to know your peace in the midst of a swirling hurricane of trial. Lord, you're not going to take us out of trials. It's through tribulations we enter the kingdom. But we can have a sanctuary in every one of them because you tell us we can. And because you love us, you love us with an everlasting love, a love that, that didn't stop a year ago or a month ago, or a week ago, or an hour ago, but a love that will keep us 10 trillion years from now. And Lord, your love is everlasting. It is is wonderful. It is, I'm just thinking of that psalm, the loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting. And you tell us that like 20 times. And you want us to remember that. The loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting. It's, It's everlasting. Lord, for those in here who are struggling, who are afraid, who are anxious, who are fearful of the state of our world or conflicts that are in their own spheres, Lord, I pray that they would remember the loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting. So, Lord, please do all these things that I cannot do in the hearts of these, your people. And Lord, for those who perhaps have gone through their lives thinking that just being religious or good will make them right with you. I pray that they would see that our righteousness is in Jesus Christ alone. He is called the Lord our righteousness. And Lord, that they would see him, they would see the cross as their only hope, but a sufficient hope and a, and a sufficient work to, to make us right with you. And uh, we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.